0: Bring your Bibles to Job chapter 38, Job 38. If we turn there, I'll remind you that we are in a summer sermon series looking at worship, the question of worship. We have considered in week one the, uh, uh, the reasons for worship, and we said perhaps the most important reason was that worship is formative. It shapes us. It molds us. The scripture is saying we become like what we worship. If we are to become like Christ, we must worship Christ. In week two, we looked at the question of the definition of worship. What is it? We're going to look later in the summer as into what it contains, the elements of worship. But what is worship? We said worship was a time, a special time that church sets aside, whereby our affections and actions, we declare God's worth. By our affections and our actions, we declare God's worth. Last week, we considered uh, who it is that ought to be worshipped. We focused in on how it must be the God of the Bible, the God who reveals himself in the pages of Scripture, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But to worship a God who did not become Jesus of Nazareth, who did not take on flesh, is to worship no God at all. To worship a God apart from any consideration of the Holy Spirit is to worship no God at all. The true God is a triune God, and we must worship him as he reveals himself. This week, you'll notice if you are a note-taker that the bulletin does not have its usual place for taking notes, nor is there any outline. And in fact, to be fair to you who are note-takers, you'll see I have no notes up here. For the goal this week is not to be caught up in the minutiae, but rather to be impacted by the transcendent. To think about God as He reveals Himself. I didn't realize some weeks ago when I was planning out the sermon series how much last week's and this week's sermons are tied together. They seemed to back then from afar like two different sermons, and yet I realize now that really this is a continuation of what we considered last week. That we must reflect upon who God is and worship in the light of who he is. We're going to do that today by considering uh, uh, God's uh, account of himself as he reveals himself to Job at the end of that book. Before we do so, let's ask his guidance in prayer. Lord, let us see you. Not as we would like you to be, not as we would form you, not as we would make you into our own image, not as the culture would have you be, not as our fallen hearts would would wish you to be, but as you are. While we will consider only a small portion of your revelation this morning, let it strike us and fall upon us, for some of us for the first time in a striking way, for some of us to renew our proper understanding of who you are. Lord, by the power of your spirit, let it be for all of us call to worship, to worship you and to know you, the only true God. So we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Job chapter 38, beginning there in verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job. I'm going to stop right there and say that's a striking statement. The Lord answered Job. What's going on there? What is up with that? Well, first of all, you may not be aware of it, Job is probably, we don't know for sure, but probably the oldest text of the scripture, the oldest book in the Bible. Whether or not, we believe it to be probably the first of all of the literature that we now have written down as the Bible. Not only is the book itself old, but when it occurred, We don't know, there's no dating references for sure in Job, but as we piece together different literature from the ancient world, it seems like Job fits a time, probably right about the time of Abraham, or maybe even a little before. This was a long time ago. In other words, it's a time when there was no Bible. It's a time when knowing God and talking to God was done in a way that was a little more direct than we do today. Just as God spoke with Cain in the aftermath of Abel's murder, just as God spoke in a direct way with Noah, just as God spoke in a direct way with the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he interacted with Job in that same way. So we might look at that and say, well, God answered Job. Well, this was just the normal dialogue. This is how it happened. But you've got to understand the context. We're jumping in at chapter 38. You see, God is not answering Job in the sense of a normal dialogue, but rather it's the sense of giving an account to Job. Job has held God accountable and has demanded of God an explanation for what has happened. Most people are familiar, at least in broad strokes, with the life of Job, a man of phenomenal blessing in this life. A wonderful family. Ten children that he thoroughly enjoyed. Unbelievable wealth. Back in chapter 1, the description of his wealth. He is a man of unbelievable uh, 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 material goods in his day. But he loses all of that. His wealth is taken away from him. And he says, okay, I'll still praise God. That his children are taken away from him. They are killed. And he says, I will still praise God. That his health is attacked. And he says, okay, I will still praise God. And then his wife turns away. And says, come on, you moron. Just curse God and die. And he says, I will still Praise God. And yet in the midst of that, as he begins to examine his situation, he begins to have a dialogue, and pretty much chapters 3 through 37 are this back-and-forth dialogue with his friends. They begin to examine his situation. They begin to ponder, how is it, Job, that you ended up here? And as the back-and-forth goes, his friends say, well, you must have done something to bring all this upon you. And Job reflects and says, no, I really didn't. I've lived a good life. I have been free from evil. I've done what is right. And the friends say, oh, no, that can't be the case. God would not do this to you if that were the case. And he says, you're right. And he finally turns to God in his frustration and says, God, what is going on? Answer me. Tell me why this has happened. Because as I reflect on it, it's not right. In the early days of his catastrophe, he said, oh, sure, I will praise God. But as he began to reflect, he was like, yeah, that's not quite so easy. What has happened? And he demands of God an answer, an accountability. Now, we could say at this point, it would be tempting to go, well, that's just, you know, uh, how incredibly prideful of him. Clearly, he did something wrong. Clearly, he was a sinful man. And there was something he did that that caused all of this. But Job chapter 1, verse 1, God says of Job that he was upright and blameless. It's not Job's evaluation of himself. And in fact, what we know that Job doesn't what God reveals to us, that He did not reveal to his servant Job, was that all of this has come because God initiated it. God held up Job as this standard of faithfulness to Satan, and said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan said, well, of course, Job loves you, look how great, how blessed he is. You've been so nice to him, it's easy to love you in that situation. God says, go ahead, take it all away from him. That's why all those things befell Job. He really hadn't done anything to bring those things upon himself. He is frustrated. He is having a hard time with the catastrophe in his life. And he says, explain to me, God. What has happened? That's the context of this opening line in chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job. Let's keep reading. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. You want to ask me, Job? You want to hold me accountable? You want me to respond and answer you? How about we turn it around? But I ask you a few things, and we'll see where the score stands. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together? And all the sons of God shouted for joy. And the tone is now set for what's going to happen over the next several pages where we see God say to Job, Really? Really, you're going to hold me accountable? You think you understand how things are supposed to play out. You think that if catastrophe happened to you, it could only happen because something bad and you did something wrong and it could only come as punishment. You understand how the world works. So show me, tell me how the world works. Explain to me how the world works, Job. We keep reading. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it bursts out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment in thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, "Thus far you shall you come and no further," and here shall your proud ways be stayed. You know, it's one thing. We stand at this, uh, the shore of the sea and we look at the ocean. Have you ever asked yourself, why is it the waters stay there? Why don't they just leave? The earth is spinning. When things are spinning, they fly off. Why don't the waters just fly off the earth? Why do they stay point? you? You say, well, it's gravity, Pastor. Yes. And how does naming it help you understand it? <laughs> Calling it gravity doesn't make it any clearer. It's still a mystery. You're telling me that the earth there's this invisible force from the earth that reaches out, grabs the water, and pulls it. Oh yeah, that clears it right up. Well, we understand today, Pastor. You know, gravity, masses, any any object, any object with any amount of mass, it affects the space-time continuum and it warps it in such a way that other things fall. through. Really? That's not clearer. That's more bizarre. That is weirder. That is more phenomenal that objects can affect space and time. It is, the more we understand of these things, the more amazing they become, not less so. Our day and age, we have named it, and therefore we put it aside as though we understand it. But if Job was in awe, we should be even more so in awe because we have understood the depths and complexities of what is going on, to at least some degree. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seals. Beautiful metaphor here. It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. The clay under the the the, the soft clay, you take a signet ring and you press it. It's got no features. It's just flat. And then you press it with the ring, and now it's got three-dimensional contours. In the middle of the night, there are no features to the earth, and when the sun rises, all of a sudden we see all this stuff revealed. Beautiful poetry. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, if you know, all of this. From considering the sunrise and the heights of the heavens, he says, now what about the depths of death? You don't know the source, you don't understand the source of life, the sun, nor do you understand the end of life, the depth of the grave. Where is the way to the dwelling of light, and where is the place of darkness, that you may take it to its territory, that you may discern the past to its home? You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. You don't often think of our God being sarcastic. But there is no other way to look at these words. It is dripping with irony. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the day of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way, the place where the light is distributed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt? To bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man. To satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass. Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? Or who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. I can remember in our science class in seventh grade, studying the water cycle. And we learned about how the, water, the rain falls, and it, precipitation, and it runs off, or something that's soaked in, and it ends up going out to a lake, or to a stream, or it ends up back in the ocean, and it evaporates, and it forms clouds, and it falls again. That's how it happens. The rain it just it goes around and around, and it's like, there, I've got to master, it. I've got it I understand it. That's crystal clear. Some years later, I was in grad school. I was taking a a biochemistry course. (laughs) The first chapter of the biochemistry book, the longest chapter in the entire book. You know what the title of the chapter was? Water. Because we're going to understand biochemistry, we have to understand water. Here I was in seventh grade, thought I had it all understood. I understood water completely. It was an entire chapter of my biochemistry course entitled Water. Because water itself is an amazing substance. As we're told, we consider the water here. Think about it. It talks about the freezing in the soil. Did you know? Have you ever thought about this? Think about all the things that you're familiar with. Water is one of the very, very rare substances that expands when it freezes. Most substances shrink upon freezing. And you say, so what? But here's so what if water didn't expand, then ice wouldn't float, and if ice didn't float then when the lakes got cold in the winter time, the ice would sink to the bottom and the top would freeze, and sink to the bottom, the top would freeze, and sink to the bottom, the top would freeze, and sink to the bottom eventually the whole lake would be ice, and everything in it would die every winter be killed off the bottoms of the oceans, from about 600 feet on down, would all be frozen solid but they can't freeze because it can't expand because of all the weight of the water on top of it because water Expands when it freezes. Water is a phenomenal solvent. Every mother knows this on the way to church. You look over in the back seat, oh, there's some grape jam for breakfast. And it's gone. Poof. Water is an amazing substance, and God says to Job, have you even thought about it? Have you considered water? You don't even understand it, and I made it. We keep reading. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades uh, constellation or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the uh, Maseroth in their seasons? Uh, These are the different constellations of the different times of year. And can you guide the bear with its children? uh, There's a portion of the constellation of the bear that we know as the Big Dipper, same constellations that some of you are familiar with. Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can tilt the uh, the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thickets? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? I think my English teacher in high school might have... Consider this to be, at least, if we stop here, to consider this to be a little a uh, 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 shotgun approach. It's kind of here, and then here's the heavens, and the waters, and the deeps and the animals, and over here. And yet, that's the point. This is not bad structuring. This is not that the author of Job failed to make an outline and then gather like thoughts in order. The point is just the opposite. It's to overwhelm the reader with God's uh, power and strength. Job has no sooner considered the waves of the seashore than God says, I'm a busy man, I've got other things to do. No, he's not a man, I'm a busy person. I've got other things to do. We can't just stand here by the seashore. Have you considered the lion or the constellations or this or that or the other thing? You think it's easy, Job? There's a lot, and you must be overwhelmed by it. Far from being a flaw in the literature, it serves its purpose beautifully to overwhelm us, to have us going from here to there to there to there. Our brains can't keep up. We keep reading. Do you know when the mountain goat gives birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? Or do you know the time when they give birth? When they crouch bring forth their offspring, and are delivered of their young. Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. The very idea of growth and development is amazing. That a fawn so helpful. I don't know if you ever seen a new newborn fawn. I got one time in the wild to see a brand new born fawn. Still glossy, shaky leg. mom still licking it clean just a few months later the thing is running I guess running like a deer for lack of a better term running all and then it's just a few months after that boom it's out on its own to go from that sort of dependence and weakness to being to being a functional adult deer it's an amazing thing who has let the, who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the ba- bonds of the swift donkey, to whom I have given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place? He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture, and he searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will you spend the night? At, will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes, or will he uh, harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great, and will you leave to him your labor? Do you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? In short, the answer to all of this is no, 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 and no. Sure, you've tamed some beast, mankind. Sure, Job, you can have a team of oxen that pulls your Plough and harvest your crops. But if you consider the even more powerful beasts out there, wouldn't it be even better if you were pulling your plow? But you have no hope of that. You cannot tame him. The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but they are the pinions and plumies, but are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs in the earth and lets them be uh, warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young, as if they were not hers, Though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to free, she laughs at the horse and at his rider. The ostrich may not be the best caretaker, but God takes care of her young, so that there is another generation of ostriches. But He did endow her with glory. He did endow her with something amazing. Look at her speed. And speaking of horses, verse 19: uh, uh, Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He prays in the valley, exult, pause in the valley, and exalts in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him a rattle, the quiver, the flashing spear, and the javelin. With fierceness and rage, he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and their shouting. And we would say, oh, but we've overcome that. We've put an end to the war horse. We've built tanks and jeeps and other vehicles, mechanized war. Just ask the Poles how their horses worked out against Hitler's tanks in September of 39. But does that make God any less amazing? Or did we create iron and give it the qualities that we gave it? Did we make iron something that was so plentiful and readily available in the earth that it could be smelted so easily, that it could be shaped and formed, that in one sense it's easy to work with, and in another sense it's incredibly hard and durable? Or did we create bauxite that makes it plentiful upon the earth, out of which aluminum might be smelted, so that lightweight, strong crafts like airplanes and jets could be formed? We have figured out and exploited their properties. We did not give them their properties. We did not endow these things with their qualities. The fact that we have transcended the war force does not make God's point invalid. And we keep reading it. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the rock he dwells and makes his home, upon the rocky crag and stronghold. From there he spies out the prey, his eyes behold it from afar, his young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there he is. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. You've asked for an account from me, Job. I've responded. What have you to say now? Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer mm-hmm. I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. And at this point, many of you are feeling like Job. We hit the point. Enough. You don't need to read on any further. But Job was a righteous man. Job was an upright man. Job was a man who shunned evil and pursued God. Would any one of us look in the mirror and say, We are on the level of Job, humanly speaking? God says, You only have begun to scratch the surface of who I am. You are not yet sufficiently overwhelmed by my godness. As he continues. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and make you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may uh, be in the right? Have you an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like His? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe, clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the depths together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then I will acknowledge you that your own right hand can save you. Do we see the change here? God says to Job, if you're that great, if you're going to hold me accountable, how about you hold your fellow man accountable? Have you dealt with the wickedness upon the earth? You're worried about whether or not I've done what is right. How about your neighbor? Can you hold him to account? How dare you come into my heaven and expect that I should answer you. When you taking care of all the problems on the world, maybe then I will think about turning over to the problems of the universe. And it's maybe and its supervision and superintendence. Behold the behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him, where all the wild beasts play. Under the locust plants he lies in the shelter of the, of the reeds and in the marsh for his shade. For his shade, the lotus trees cover him. The willows are the brook. Sur- uh, uh, I'm sorry. The willows of the brook surround him. Behold, If the river is, the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? We're not certain exactly uh, what what Behemoth is. The description sounds an like awful lot like one of the uh, the, the great uh, uh, herbivorous uh, dinosaurs. But that creates a bit of a timeline problem. So I, I don't know, but it's some amazing beast that God created and Job can't even approach. Can you draw out Leviathan, official, or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose and pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make, uh, will, will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you, soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird, or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traitors bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the the, the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of the man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. You can't even approach my creation. Don't come to me, the creator. demand of me count. More about this Leviathan. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs, or his mighty strength, or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who would come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth is terror. His back is made of rows of shields, shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to the other that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. At this point, it sounds like a crocodile or an alligator. Fierce teeth ringing its mouth and, and uh, uh, armor on its back. And yet we, we read on. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the islands of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils comes forth smoke, as from a a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength, and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him, and immovable. His heart is hard as stone, hard as a lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid, and and the crashing... I'm sorry. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee, for him slingstones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp potsherds He... Spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire, who makes the deep boil like a pot, He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth there is not his light, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. creations of God transcend even things that we can imagine. I think it's stunning that widespread cultures like the Chinese and the Germans and the Anglo-Saxons and the Norsemen all have a tradition of a fire-breathing reptile. Maybe it existed. Sure sounds like a dragon to me right here. But how do we know from a mere fossil? The point is simple, that what God is able to create by the word of his power is unimaginable. We cannot even begin to approach it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I, I, you would ask me, who is this that hides uh, counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. You have said to me, Hear, and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Is this your God? Is this your God? Or is your God like one of the hypothetical beasts that was mentioned in here? Something which you could put a ring through its nose and lead it where you want it to go. Is your God all-powerful in the sense of a genie? All-powerful, but it might not be called. At my command. Is the vision you have of God a vision that He is powerful but that power is only ever unleashed for your purposes at your will when you want or do you know this is God do you understand that this is the Almighty. When the Bible speaks of God the Almighty, it's not talking about God the Almighty who's just waiting for you to set him free so we can do something. It's not talking about God the Almighty who is up there twiddling his thumbs, just hoping that you'll have enough faith that his miracles will work out. He points to the creatures on the earth and says to Job you can't tame them by implication we are to understand that we cannot tame God. we cannot hem him in we cannot have him be what we want him to be and you say to me pastor well that's the Old Testament God the New Testament God is not like that I'm sorry, which of the kings that was slain in our New Testament reading from Revelation 19 would not have liked very much to be able to tame the rider on the white horse? Which of those armies that became food for the vultures in that passage would not have liked very much to be able to say, Oh, hey there, Mr. Almighty oh, God, I didn't actually ask for you to do this. Go back and Wait. I set you free. We must come to grips with this God. A God who is unleashed. A God who is untamable. A God who cannot be harnessed. A God who does not work for us. Job was a righteous man, an upright man, by God's own account, and he did not understand God. We must see this. We have not even spoken of his holiness. We have not even spoken of his moralness, of the degree to which he holds us accountable. Add on to this view of God, Jesus teaching to his disciples, and said, you know what? Your morality, your righteousness, your goodness must exceed that of the Pharisees and scribes. We tend to look at the Pharisees and well, you know, they would be caught up in little details, and that you know, that's not the way it's supposed to be. No, God says to the Pharisees, keep about the little details, and also consider the larger things of the law. It is the New Testament writer of Hebrews that says, without some purity, without some sanctification, without holiness, no one will see God. We have not begun to approach the issues of his morality and his ethical standard, of his absolute perfection and holiness. We must come to grips with the God of the Bible as he presents himself, as he reveals himself to you, him. it is for this reason that the church has lost its power in North America today. Because we have shown God of all power. We don't believe him to really have this kind of power and authority. We don't see him like this. Until we do we will be of no account in this world. have no effect. Make no difference. At this point, I rocked in my brain this week as I was thinking about this. I can come up with only three possible responses at this point. When we see a God who is this awesome, who is this fearsome, who is this terrible, who is this mighty, who is this holy, who is this transcendent, who is this superior... There are only three possible responses that I can think of maybe you come up with another. The first is this. Just to be dismissive of it. That's not really what God is like. God's not really like that. And to a degree we can be forgiven for some of that because we have neutered God even in our churches how much more so in our culture. He's just the big guy upstairs, the boss man. No, he's not. If this is not God in your mind and heart, if this is not who you worship, if this is not who you see, my dear friend, I'm afraid you aren't worshiping the true God. don't care what you call yourself. You can put the label Christian on but this is the God of the Bible. To be dismissive of a God who is this transcendent, this almighty, this awesome, is to be dismissive of the revealed world. It's to leave you with no God second possible response is to fall down in humility before him and to respond with groveling and to some degree there's an appropriateness there but it too is going to leave you short of the mark it's a step in the right direction to recognize that this is who God is and we owe Him honor and glory. We owe Him blessings due His name. We owe Him attributions of what He is. But merely in our groveling, merely in our humility, we will not give so what is the third option? Some of you have already gotten there. Some of you are already smiling. I praise God for that. For you recognize that this same God made a way. Opened up the path. Provided a conduit. Provided a covering. Provided a way by which we might be sheltered. Of who he is. You see, if we don't understand who God is and his transcendent power, then we've got the amazing grace of the gospel. We cannot fully appreciate Jesus and what he has done and who he is if we don't fully appreciate God's godness. if our God is not transcendent then his becoming one of us isn't that big of a deal. If our God is not perfect in holiness then his taking on sin isn't all that shocking. If our God is not almighty and fierce in his anger then that anger being turned away at the cross it we must see God for God, so that we can see all. Of God, so that we can understand the richness of all that we have. That's time when we come back and gather to continue this, uh, this series of worship, we're going to look at the second half of that. We have said this morning we must praise and worship God simply for the fact that He is God. But we will look next time at the fact that we get to praise and worship Him because He is our Savior. He is our Redeemer. He is the one who picks Job off the ground. you need to make a Lord, Forgive us for not seeing you as you really are. Forgive us for just making you small. Making you insignificant, inconsequential, unimportant. Let us through the revelation to Job, through the whole of the scriptures, through all the different ways that you tell us and show us, let us see you as who you are. Let us worship you because of that. Let us rejoice in light of that. Let us have before us a rightful, appropriate fear that is immediately tempered with the mercy of Christ. We praise this. We praise this in his name.